My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Sundays with Tozer on Mickles and Dimes. Justin Tozer is singular. One of the smartest, kindest, most generous, insightful, caring, understated, hardworking, impactful, selfless people to have ever lived. If you've never met Tozer, I bet you're skeptical. If you have met Tozer, I bet you agree with me. A math and science prodigy, Tozer grew up on a farm where formal education was all but prohibited. Yet somehow Tozer would make his way to the world's most prestigious firms, first in Silicon Valley and later in Los Alamos at the world's preeminent scientific lab. Yet no professional accomplishment compares to the countless lives Tozer has saved, changed, and enhanced. Please take the time to get to know Justin Tozer through this podcast. You will become a better person for it, and you will see that Tozer is singular. Sundays with Tozer, Episode 5. Tozer has a tumor. All right, here we are again. So we were talking about Japan last time, and maybe you've had a chance to think more about Japan the incredible story of the different, you know, the guy you met by the river. Uh, you're out there for two years in Japan. Anything else you want to talk about during that time period? Uh, all I can say is the the Japanese people are really, really nice people, and they showed great respect for for us and um um. You know, we um, toured uh, Hiroshima, and um, it was very humbling to have um, an elderly person come up to us and, you know, bow all the way to the ground and thank us for um, uh, just because we were citizens of the united states that and for the what they felt like an apology i mean have we ever um has our country ever uh you know um gone to war with another country and then had its citizens apologize and then thank us for helping them recover from the war that's weird yeah it's really Really, um, we should take really good care of those people uh, in the future, and we should remember something about them. Um, do you remember in the Book of Mormon where um, the group of people, um, they were so disappointed with themselves once they had, um, you know, um, become a part of the the Nephites that they um, buried their weapons and promised they would never, ever, ever fight again. Well, the Japanese people, um, they um, made that commitment that um, they actually said that if the Chinese wanted them, they could have them in just two or three days that they would refuse to fight back. Interesting. Uh, And that, come out of that humility and disappointment with having um, done what they they come to believe they had done the wrong thing and and uh, they felt very repentant of uh, what had happened in the war and, and it's always complicated because everybody goes to war you know protecting your own interests and you know thinking you're on the side of goodness right I mean right and, most and, do. and and you kind of believe what uh your leaders tell you and and you have this feeling of patriotism so i feel you know over the last few decades when we've had all these skirmishes we say why aren't the japanese doing anything why why are our people on the ground uh dying and um they're not doing anything and then they'd send some, um, they'd send some people to, to comfort or help with medical or something like that. But they never send anybody to step on the ground and you know shoot a gun. Uh, and I suppose as the old, old men and old women who lived in that time frame pass away, and 
the younger generation may be willing to pick up arms and that and that mindset will change but um we have to be really i think we have to be really respectful of the japanese and um and why you know culturally what's different about them and how the war affected them because they're sweet people really interesting I, i never knew that um also interesting to note that however many years later in your life 20 some years later you would end up working at the lab where the atomic bomb was created yeah which obviously was not lost on you um but me as a kid <laughs> when i heard you were moving to los alamos new mexico i'm thinking you know where the heck is that and, and what what is that place yeah So it's t- it's getting time for you to come home from Japan and return to BYU. Can you remind me, had you studied for two years at BYU before you went on your mission one year? Or do you remember? I, I think it was three semesters. Okay. Um, I think it was in that third semester. And um, um, my uh, memory is not fantastic today. But uh, it seems like it was in that third semester when I was um, uh, at BYU and basically my friends had left and and I'm walking around thinking, man, I'd really like to go on a mission, but, you know, I guess they'll tell me when it's, you know, <laughs> I'm a new member and maybe I haven't been a member long enough or whatever. And um, that's when... Um, that uh, football player showed up that had probably been assigned to all of those of us who were new members of the church. And he's the one who like grabbed me by the collar and shoved me into the stairwell and pushed me up against the wall and said, when are you going on your mission? You recommend that tactic for all you? It worked for me. Um, still to this day, I don't fully understand the arrangement that had been made. Um, I, I don't know if it was a program they had or what, but I do know that, um, they had put us, uh, young people as, uh, as college freshmen who were new to the church and had come from families where maybe the family was not in the church. So we were, we didn't really know how everything worked. Uh, they put us on the same floor, and as we would encounter troubles, uh, this guy would show up. He's huge uh, compared to us, and um, he just mysteriously appear and. Uh, and counselors, we we always enjoyed the visits, but we were always eager for him to leave as well. <laughs> so you're getting ready to come back to the United States. Are how are you feeling about being done with your mission? Did you want to stay out longer? Are you excited to be back? Are you nervous to go back to the US? Um, I didn't know what it was going to be like. I was heading back uh to the States, and um my financial reserves are like nothing or nothing left and so i knew i was gonna have to uh quickly find a job uh earn money um to go back to college and i was eager to do that but also there was um while stepping off that plane um it was a weird uh feeling you know it was like i'd been part of this um mission family for two years and and now it was over with and i got a job uh working for um halliburton an oil filled service company and that was a fantastic job excellent pay um um but many many hours of, of work um um and so i worked I can't remember exactly how long I worked there. Uh, I worked long enough to, you know, 
to earn money to get back uh, to college. Um, maybe six to eight months, something like that. What town was that in? That was out of Cortez, but um, our we traveled to New Mexico, Utah, Arizona, um, uh, Halliburton. Our service area was pretty good sized, and so we traveled great distances. When when you got off the plane from Japan and you go back to Colorado, were your parents waiting for you at the airport? Did you? There was, um, I forget the details there, but when I got to the airport, there was nobody there. Uh, <laughs> there was uh, some type of a miscommunication, I think, from the, um, I don't know if it's a mission office or church uh, headquarters. I forget how the communication was done, but they actually was under my parents were under the impression that I was coming back on a different day uh, later, and um, so um, I had to find a payphone and and call. And I remember that the only the change I had in my pocket was all Japanese money. You know, I was not very not very prepared for reintroduction into uh, you know life in america so did you have to just wait at the airport for several hours or do you even remember what? yeah it was several hours and then my mom and dad showed up and and um the next day i was supposed to um go over to durango colorado uh and um what do they call it the opposite of setting apart release uh, release yeah and um, I went in to meet with um, the stake president and uh, he went through the release thing and he says, and oh, by the way, there's somebody um, out uh, that's outside of my office that uh, wants to see you. And I'm like, who? Well, it was that college football player guy from no way uh he was there at my release so that was that was interesting um do you remember his name um yeah i do um his first name is greg mm. i know it well, he would have had to drive a little ways to get to that release. Well, right? he he was uh, in Texas, and he'd driven up from Texas. Oh no way! Did he write you while you were in Japan, or no? Uh huh. And still to this day, I don't really know, you know, what the arrangement was, but I believe that um, the other kids that were on that floor in the dormitory, you know, when I was a freshman the people he come to visit um, and advise on how they should deal with campus and personal life issues and stuff. Um, I think he was there for, I got the impression he'd showed up for their um, release as well. That's pretty cool. I mean, his tactics may not, you know, be the most well-suited for all people and populations, <laughs> but that's pretty cool that he was he's watching out for you yeah um very uh dedicated uh, uh friend so you get a job at Halliburton what are you doing for Halliburton um went to training uh to uh, learn how to drive a truck and um then um we go out in the oil field and we do, um, we um, do cementing operations, you know, downhole cementing operate operations, uh, fracking, you probably heard it, um, uh, using um, both uh, acid and a whole range of things they do. And so you're not just a truck driver, but you operate that equipment 
and it can be kind of scary and dangerous and um and i ran into some hey so maybe there's something wrong with me but i was um i don't know it was built into how i thought that you followed certain rules um and i went to halliburton's own school you know i forget how long it was it's a month long anyway they told us you follow these rules and if anyone uh ever asks you to do something that violates these rules concerning safety and the well-being of your coworkers, um you don't you don't tolerate it and if you need to you come and tell us if there's a problem so we had a truck the truck's number was 8530 and 8530 had already been in a in an accident that had resulted in a, an extended hospitalization for one of its workers for one of the one of the company's employees and the problem with 8530 is it did not have brakes now you might wonder how you drive a truck that doesn't have brakes. It's difficult. And when I say it, it's brakes don't work, they literally don't work. And so um, one day when I was out in the field working and they had their um, uh, monthly safety meeting, uh, they the employees all thought it would be cute if they nominated me, somebody who was not present, to be the safety coordinator, you know, they cast that role around and it's funny, you know, the new kid, uh, let's make him in charge of this, you know, safety coordination thing. And so I come back and I find out I've been assigned to that. And then all of a sudden we have a the corporate safety officer show up one day at our facility in little cortez colorado and um we were all told that we needed to go to this meeting upstairs uh at the office and i forget the guy gave a little talk about safety and then he said um now he says i'm going to open this up and he says specifically i want your safety coordinator uh your assigned safety coordinator to um tell us if we've got any safety issues here and they said who's your safety coordinator and they point to me and i can see i'm getting ready to talk and I can see all these people in the room doing like, you know, like, <laughs> shut up. But I've been asked. And so um, I said, 8530 has no brakes. And there was one other truck number. I forget its number. It had brakes that were very marginal. And, um, oh, my manager... And the maintenance manager, their faces just, they turned colors. It was like, it was weird. And then I saw the maintenance manager. Um, I saw the, um, our manager whisper something to the maintenance manager and he ran downstairs, left the meeting. So I'm like, what's that about? And, um, oh, it was just. From that point, all hell broke loose. Um, uh, I was, um, well, the first thing they did was um, the manager and the maintenance manager denied that there were any safety issues with any of the trucks. And the um, corporate safety guy says, well, he looked at me and says, well, do you guys write down in your uh, trip reports, you know, you turn in a trip report for every trip. Do you write down that 
there's a problem with the brakes? And I said, yes, every time. And now I, I learned later that the reason the maintenance manager went downstairs was he was going to take all those trip reports and hide them and then tell them that we were disobedient and didn't fill out trip reports. And then um, they said they proved that all the brake trucks had brakes that were functional. And so the maintenance manager was asked to get into the truck 8530 and uh, to drive it down the main road through our facility and uh, demonstrate that he could, you know, get it up to a reasonable speed and then stop it. Problem is, at the end of the facility's driveway is, you know, a four-lane highway and, and a fence, you know. So you got to get it stopped before you get to the highway. And we knew we were all in trouble and we were out hiding in the wash bay. And all of a sudden we hear 8530 uh, whizzing by the wash bay. And then we felt sick because the maintenance manager was driving 8530 at a high rate of speed, heading straight, you know, for the fence and, and, and the highway. And when he got to the end, close to the end, you hear the brakes, the, the compressed air sounds, but 8530 is not slowing down. Unfortunately, there was these big berms they put up to catch spilled, you know, a fuel oil spill. And he turned the truck into the berm and, and stopped it. It was a, it was an embarrassing moment for, for our manager. It was terrible. And then the corporate safety officer left. And then I was brought into the office. And I think I just got screamed at for hours. And then they brought in my coworkers which included my brother and my cousin and several cousins and told them all that if they didn't get me to shut up, that they would be fired. So it was terrible. Now my first day off, I went back down to the regional office and I told them how we'd been treated after the corporate safety officer came because I didn't think that was right. And then I got assigned a, a brand new truck that had never been driven by anyone. And um, it was a tough time. Honesty, you know, being honest about something sometimes can cause a lot of problems. Why did they just fix the brakes? Um. <laughs> They, they, they did. Uh, I do remember the, um, the corporate safety officer asking me that question. He says, have you ever asked the maintenance manager why the brakes are not fixed? And um, I told him what the maintenance manager said. I said, he told me that some trucks just come that way. <laughs> and, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so, which is more humiliating and then they looked at the maintenance manager and says you know did you did you really tell you know i'm sure what they're thinking this young idiot that that some trucks just come that way with no brakes and anyway 8530 went to the shop it took took um oh and and i said and the i said the maintenance manager told me to actually have working brakes on it, you'd have to completely replace the axles. And they said they can't afford to replace the axles. And the corporate guy said, well, if we need to replace the axles, we'll replace the axles. So this is more important to get it fixed than to lose someone's life. You know, this is a, like a totally different time. And even just a couple weeks ago, I was downtown in Kansas City visiting Union Station, big railroad station. They've got all these renderings and beautiful pictures from when it was built. And like eight people died while it was being constructed. Now, that, that, that was built before the time period you're talking about. 
but different safety standards yeah but yeah like the the safety standards were just so different back in the day than they are now and it's like well you just drive carefully so if you know you got to stop in you know 10 meters or 100 meters you just have to slow down early like you don't need brakes if you know when you have to stop yeah there's always that fear you know that at some time when you don't expect it a kid's gonna run out in a street or something and they're like You've just violated my safety zone, you know, and I can't stop. Were you naive to what was going on? Because that's, I mean, that's sometimes when I talk to you, I don't know if, if like you knew, did you know that you weren't supposed, that you were supposed to play by the rules that other people were playing by? Did you know you were violating the rules? Like, what was your thought process here? Or are you just angry that they're not being honest and so you want to call them out on it? I was naive. Um, I didn't believe everything they had told me, but I was also naive and I didn't understand why people would um, might not be truthful. And, you know, I took assignments seriously. So they thought it was all a joke too assign me the new guy to be this like safety coordinator they didn't none of them wanted the job and and most people just thought as a safety coordinator who is a person who handed out free gloves at the end of the month for people who hadn't had a workplace injury uh they didn't take it seriously and um we did as employees frequently get together and talk about the safety issues and people were really worried um i you know and uh the employees i'd say for the most part all care about each other and they had recently witnessed just before i got there an employee who had uh, was driving the 8530 truck from uh cortez over to moab and they got to um I forget the name of the hill, but it's a long downward hill. And they got on that hill and 8530 just kept going a little faster and a little faster. And then the driver got to a point where he couldn't couldn't manage the speed by downshifting because the RPMs and so on were too high. And, um, you know, he wrecked the truck and injured himself. And they, they had another rule, the manager had his own rule, that if you wreck a truck, you're terminated. It doesn't matter whose fault it is, but your employment's terminated at the time you wreck. Um, so that's a fantastic deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, so I got so many things are going through my head in ethics. So when I teach ethics, we talk about um, how it's important to blow the whistle on wrongdoing, but there's always this funny kind of culture that exists or can exist in organizations starting at a very young age where to be the snitch is like, you know, that's the worst thing you could possibly be like, who wants to be a snitch? And I remember, you know, my parents taught me, you know, if you see something wrong, you know, you, you tell the teacher or you tell an adult, and I remember getting to school and I don't remember what age I was, but it was somewhere in grade school where people would do bad things. And so I'm thinking, you know, like we need to tell the teacher because this is, you know, this bad thing's going on. And it's like, no, you don't, you don't tell the teacher because then you're the snitch. And so this culture <laughs> gets created where everybody's like, yeah, of course. So you don't, one, you don't take the safety coordinator job seriously you just brush everything under the rug and two, you don't want to be a snitch. But one thing I've always admired about you is you don't play by those rules of we're not going to be a snitch. You really seem to, you don't care what the consequence. Now in, the, in some instances you may be naive, but you don't really care about the rules that other people establish if they're not ethical or honest or fair. Yeah, I, I think, to some extent, my brain never um, tried, wasn't, was not very good at understanding what the social expectations were. Um, I took everything at, at 
kind of face value or, you know, if you give me a document that says what the rules are, I'll read it and follow them. And um, that's one thing that in my career arise dealing with federal regulations. Um, I was really good at keeping companies, you know, the laboratories and stuff out of trouble because I knew the, the regulations inside and out. And that was an advantage. That sounds a little bit, and I don't know much about autism, but I know you've dealt with a number of people that have autism. Were you ever tested for autism? No. I I have a tendency to think that my uh, social awkwardness may have just been kind of being raised in a rural area. And... Uh, being raised by a father who tried to kind of isolate his family and also um, a family that there wasn't a lot of communication going on between us. So um, that's like, you know, six years of your life yeah, of very little communication and very little interaction with other human beings. But then you're off the charts, incredible at math, science, engineering. And, and I just thought it was interesting that you said your brain doesn't always pick up the social cues, which is also really interesting to me because socially, in some ways, maybe you're naive at times, but you develop some of the deepest, best friendships with people. And so socially, you're also off the charts great. So it's kind of an interesting combination. I don't know if you've ever, like, if you ever think about that, like, maybe sometimes I miss some social cues, but I'm also really effective at creating deep, meaningful, long-lasting relationships. I mean, I don't know, the, the goal of this was never to get into the psychoanalysis of <laughs> <laughs> of you, but this is just kind of interesting as I'm thinking about it. Well, you know, I'm still trying to figure all that stuff out. And, um, you know, I, I also have come to believe in recent years that um, a lot of my behavior in life has to do with the pituitary problem. And um, once they started trying to treat the, the prolactinoma, um, I, I, to be honest, I was a little disappointed with uh, some of the changes, you know. Um, my prolactin levels, um, males were, ought to be around, I don't know, maybe six or seven. Um, is it nanograms per liter or something like that? And anyway, Mine was 200, 300, 400, 500, 600. Um, more, you know, um, only pregnant women have any idea what it's like to have a high prolactin level. And prolactinomas are most common in women and a lot more rare in men. And um, I think when the prolactin level goes above just like 16 or 17, uh, testosterone levels uh, just go way down, uh, almost completely off. And so I think, um, well, I, I don't know if it's the medication they give me or if it's the testosterone levels going back up, but um, I feel like uh, the treatment clouds the mind. Um and it's harder to think deeply. I just know I, I I've got this new feeling that um, that we should be a lot less judgmental of a lot of people that we're we're around, whether it's in the workforce or in the community. Some people are slower at getting things done. Some people are brilliant and fast. Uh, some people our uh, approach relationships differently. Some people have no relationships. 
Um, you know, we don't, there are so many factors that affect who they are. And those people may have little control over some of those things in their life that make that makes them who they are. Um, you know, who knew that Craig Henderson had turned out to be a, a big, wonderful teddy bear, you know? Um, I th I'm pretty um, sure he gave me a, he gave me a swirly or two when I was, <laughs> you know, it's like at the time it didn't feel good. And I probably cried a little bit or I was at least frustrated because it, it doesn't feel And I tried to, you know, take it well, but it doesn't feel good to be at church for youth night and, you know, you get your head stuck in a toilet. Well, he had a pituitary problem and they treated it and I think he changed a lot. Yeah. Well, and, there's, you know, I was, um, I was very judgmental of, of Craig in those early years. And it's like, you know, I, I feel bad about that. Um, I don't think, I don't think anybody wakes up and decides they want to be a bad person today. Well, there's a few sociopaths. And but even, even they may not have biochemical they may not control, have, right? I mean, that's the thing. They, they may have, um, may not have got off on a, uh, on a fair footing in life. So, should we take a moment to, I mean, do you want to just share what or describe the health issue you're having now and what the treatment is for that and how long it's been going on? Um, so I have what's called a prolactinoma, which um, pituitary tumors get named, uh, I think, based on um, when a tumor attaches to the pituitary gland, it tends to cause at least one, could be more, but at least one uh, of the uh, pituitary hormones to go way high. Um, but simply naming it doesn't tell you what, what all is happening. So if you get 10 people in a room with a prolactinoma, the only thing they have in common probably is that um, they all have high prolactin levels. But then there's a question about what about um, the hormones that control testosterone? What about cortisol? What about um, thyroid? Um, you know, the pituitary is like this uh, amazing thing that sends out chemical signals. It can do it. And it can very quickly respond to the needs of the body. Um, so maybe your prolactinoma is just making prolactin high, or maybe it's messing up everything. Mine tends to mess up everything, you know. Um, so testosterone low, prolactin high, uh, thyroid uh, pretty much stopped functioning. And it was the thyroid that, um, <clears throat> um, the hormone that tells your thyroids to do something. And when that stopped working, then, uh, you know, I felt like I didn't have enough energy to, 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 to stand up or walk across the room. And it's like, well, I'm dying, but, you know everybody's got to go sometime oh my God. And, and so um i um went to the hospital i didn't have a primary care doctor and they um said well we should probably do some blood tests and and they did and then the hospital called back and they said you don't have a primary care doctor but we need you to come over uh, right away for uh mri i'm like Okay, can you tell me any more? No, you'll have to talk to a primary care doctor. Oh, and you don't have one. But anyway, you need to come over right away for an MRI. And and then they did the MRI, and then I got the call, and just shortly after that, and they said, well, we need to arrange for you to, to see a, a neurosurgeon. And I says, what's this for? What'd you find? What's wrong? 
oh, you don't have a primary care physician. You need a primary care physician. <laughs> but but the, the neurosurgeon, when you meet with, with him or her, they can tell you what's going on. So it's like, and this is huge mystery. And my mom panicked. Um, and she um, called her primary care doctor, who hadn't been accepting new patients for years. She called her late at night while she was in the bathtub. And um, she took me on as a patient. And then they got um, uh, one of the hospitals over in Denver uh, that focuses this kind of a national expert on pituitary issues. And they come up with a treatment plan. Um, at first, they tried to treat it with one of two drugs that have been um, found to be helpful. And um, they had to keep increasing the dosage and the medicine. That, I don't like the medicine. But eventually, when they got the dose high enough, it worked. Then they talked about surgery. And then they decided that uh, the prolactinoma was so, it had been there so long or whatever it had, um, what's the word? It had become totally enmeshed with the pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland's just like, it's just like the size of a bean, you know, it's tiny, uh, not much. And when they do the surgery, they go up through your nose and then they have to get into a little bony structure there. Very difficult spot. And your brain's right there. And um, anyway, they decided they couldn't do it. And so they're treating it. And and uh, you know, things are okay. It's just I tend to be weak and I have headaches and sometimes my vision's affected. And I, um, have you ever heard women talk about hot flashes? Yeah. So my hormone levels are not really finely controlled like by most people's are. So I take the medicine and something goes down, something else goes up and it's, it's all over the place. So I'll get like, just feel like I'm burning up in a room that everybody else says it's the temperature is just fine. And get covered in sweat. Now this was about, I'm thinking it was seven to eight years ago when you got diagnosed with the tumor. Is that right? Timeline? Uh, I'm guessing it's probably been about six. Okay. Um, How long do you think you had the tumor before it was well, diagnosed? By going back through uh, historical records where there were little indicators that there was something wrong and then by asking a personal questions about, um, you know, how I responded to certain things, you know, at what point were you interested in, in sexual activity and, or whatever, and then when were you not and so on. Um, they guessed that the, that the uh, tumor probably became a factor around age 13. Oh my gosh. Um, so most of my life. Um, and, you know, I always wondered, like, there's, you know, I'm different. Something's not right. And I can remember, um, um, oh, yeah, you know, he uh, interrogated me for several hours to try to figure out you know what was wrong with me? <laughs> um, some form of talk therapy didn't work. Uh, probably got like a five or six hour, you know, <laughs> past midnight interrogation until his beautiful wife made him stop. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, but, you know, lots of people have expectations for how your life is supposed to proceed. And if it's not proceeding like that, they see it as some type of disobedience or something, you know, that just needs to be corrected with a, with a good lecture. 
Was that frustrating to you? I mean, you seem to handle most things pretty well. But it's frustrating that... because you don't know. Here they are that, you know, they think that you should be doing something. Good intention, you know, for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. So I have, I, love these I have no hard feelings against them at all. Yeah. Um, and then, um, but the worst, the one that really hurt was was down in uh, Los Alamos. Um, I always had a good relationship with my bishop and um, and stake presidents until Los Alamos. And we had a an elderly stake president who um, he brought me in for an interview one day and he said he's going to ask me a lot of questions that were not um, church approved church approved questions standard policy yeah and they were very deep and probing and then at the end of that interview he says i want you to um he says i have a daughter who's an adult uh, she lives down in arizona she's never married and uh, she's a wonderful girl and i want you two together uh, I want her married. I want you married. And and so he got her to come up and and we did go out and but she had a problem too. She's not gonna tell her dad because well it's unacceptable, you know. Yeah. Um, I I don't know if she's actually interested in women rather than men or whatever, but she um she she was never going to get married and um oh he brought me in after we said we weren't going to continue any relationship and he told me that if i didn't take care of that immediately that he would um remove me he would uh take me out of my ward calling, which he knew was important to me, and assigned me to something at the stake level just to um, just to be ornery. And what did I do? I went to the bishopric and told him he's getting ready to do something just to be ornery. And I didn't really like the two interviews I've had with him. And um, and they wouldn't let him do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not trying the, to do it. <laughs> again, you're not. You're not the type of person that's just going to take that when somebody's doing something inappropriate, unethical, not fair. You don't care about the consequences of like blowing the whistle, right? Yeah, and I, I feel that was, and since we have reconciled. Um, he, um, what he did was very wrong, and it ended up that he, he has some, he's dealing with dementia or something, uh, and things, he started behaving more erratically, even with other people, Yeah, and, and, and they had to, you know, uh, remove him from that position, and you know, later in his own little way, he tried to apologize. It wasn't really an apology, but <laughs> I, I know that he felt that way. And he got obsessed with trying to make his, I think they had six children, and they got really obsessed with trying to make their six children like perfectly what they thought they needed to be. They all needed to be Eagle Scouts, and one of them wasn't. They all needed to be married, and one of them wasn't. And that was hard for them to deal with as parents, uh, the imperfections of their children. Well, it's interesting too, you know, this erratic behavior has some roots in biochemical issues, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. so. Okay, so going back to the, the tumor, low testosterone. So this is probably why you were so small mm -hmm. in high school, right? And it's yeah, and it's also why my dad was probably incredibly disappointed with me. You know, he saw 
the boys, we were supposed to be a big part of the hay hauling crew. Um, there's lots of heavy lifting on the farm. My brother was very capable of doing all of those things at an early age. When I hit those milestone ages, it's like, you know, the kid's worthless, just too little. But did the pituitary tumor increase your focus? Because you're saying now the the one of the side effects of the medicine, it drops your prolactinoma levels, but it increases your testosterone. But are, are, is your focus issue just another side effect of the medicine that's could be a correlated but not caused? Okay. I also think it could be a factor of maybe we don't want everyone to have high testosterone levels. Maybe they behave differently. Um, yeah, what do you mean? I don't know. Maybe they'd be more aggressive. Maybe they would be – we'd have – maybe if we um, – we ought to go do an experiment and find uh, these people who solve complex uh, mathematical things and measure their testosterone level and see where it's at. Are they high, low, or are they all over the spectrum? Interesting thing to look into. And oh, by the way, you know, we always admire how dogs have such fantastic smell um, and, you know, and they can track okay. uh, people and stuff. Hey, when your prolactin levels are high, you can smell things that nobody else smells. No way. Yeah. And, um, man, every, uh, you know, every day I'd be going through the refrigerator to, to uh, throw things out that, um, that, um, that a normal person might not detect as starting to uh, decay. Did you know there's a Seinfeld episode about this a little bit? No. George stops having sex and he becomes a genius. Oh, really? Because <laughs> yeah. he's able to focus, you know. He, he, he stops all of the all of the mental space that was focused on sex is now freed up to focus on other things, and he becomes a genius. So they were tapping into something there, potentially. Uh, it would be interesting, and there probably have been studies done that I just haven't, um, you know, that um, that I don't know about. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's some connections between uh, hormone levels and and behavior and um, and capabilities of yeah. humans. I mean, it would only make sense that if you start very, you know, pulling on the different levers it's going to lead to some different outcomes. Yeah. But I, I was able to solve problems at work that other people just couldn't. And I remember in my brain being able to run through the equivalent of, of hundreds, thousands, millions of combinations of, um, you know, when you get into building complex systems, there are only, there's lots of, uncontrolled variables and they increase rapidly you know um, if you got two variables on and off you know you got four combinations um, if you got um, three you got eight combinations and it starts getting unwieldy very quickly but I at one time could sit down and go through those in my mind and make a good decision when other people just couldn't couldn't get through the process in a timely way which and they'd end up just guessing and not coming up with good solutions so in my uh, leadership class or in a, in a number of my classes I've done this you know you, you got 30 people in a room and I say, um, I bet one of you shares a birthday and I'll bet you $50 that one of you shares a birthday. And everybody will say like, oh, I'll take that bet because there's only 30 of us. So, you know, the odds of somebody sharing a birthday is really low because there's 365 days in a year and there's only 30 people uh -huh. here. But what are the odds of somebody sharing a birthday if there's 30 people in a room? Would you take my bet? <laughs> um, 
Probably not, um, because the odds are pretty good that somebody's going to share a birthday. But there's only 30 people. Yes. But um, each one of those people have one, um, you know, when, if, if they're just two people in the room, what's the possibility they sh share the birthday? You're where you're applying that calculation to the to the thirty that's in the room. Odds improve every time another person steps into that room. Not linearly, though. They don't improve linearly, right? I don't remember, but well, they... I remember. Uh, um, I'm out I over my ski. Calculation is. What'd you say? What is the probability? <laughs> well, the probability. I mean, it, it at twenty three, there's a fifty percent chance. At twenty three, there's at, at twenty three, there's a fifty percent chance that somebody shares because as your brain just so you know automatically does, you start thinking about all of the possible combinations, not just you know the one versus one comparison. So yeah, 20, you know, if I'm the 23rd person, I can share with 22 other people, but the 22nd person can compare with 21 other people and the 21st person mm -hmm. can compare with 20 other people. And anyway, it's just, you know, you hear that question and you immediately start thinking about all the combinations, which maybe back in the day, you could have run that Not in your head and calculated <laughs> it, but. And that's you know, the other thing is when I, um, went through my curriculum in college i prided myself on everything i studied i studied to, to understand and to remember it forever so when i went in to take a test i was testing stuff that was i put in there to be there forever and um i don't think most people do that <laughs> you don't think they do <laughs> i think Often they're more focused on passing that test. Often. And so um, I used to be able to draw on all of that information. I think it's still stored in there someplace. It's a, but, you think it's a retrieval um, issue? This, yeah, a retrieval problem. Yeah, I mean, if you had to estimate what percent of people who go in to take exams or are studying for exams are trying to store this away forever, versus the percentage of people who are just trying to pass pass the exam what would your estimate be i don't know based on uh co-workers i've ran into in engineering departments i'm going to guess that maybe only about one in ten made any effort to do something other than pass the test and you're working with engineers who are going to use this stuff yeah, and remember, their situation is different. They're being asked, uh, and often their decision results in could, um, you know, not understanding the science and engineering could result in uh, health or safety issues. And um, they'll tell you that, well, I, I didn't really memorize it, but I, uh, you know, I can go. Uh, look find it, up. it look yeah. it up the problem is often they don't remember enough to know what to go look up and oh by the way i saved all of my books so if, <laughs> if i ever did have a mental retrieval problem they're all there you can look it up yeah i mean you're not you're not you weren't trying to remember all of your humanities courses for the rest of your life i'm assuming or were you um no, but I always studied to, I enjoyed studying. So yeah. uh, even if it had been um, some other subject, I really wanted to understand it. A couple Learning of exciting. Sorry, what? Learning was exciting. A couple episodes you, you mentioned, a couple episodes ago, you mentioned how the classroom is this special place and you didn't want it to feel like a prison. And in my classroom, I don't allow computers because I know that I cannot compete with the entire body of, you know, world history and entertainment 
because I feel like the classroom is a special place and I don't want to everybody to be distracted. Obviously, if everybody could use it appropriately, I wouldn't care, but I know, you know, we're all tempted to focus on. Yeah. And how many meetings have you been in or sessions where you, you, you notice people pulling out these devices and, um, and maybe they're even pulling out the device because they think they're, you know, they're looking up something or trying to understand something, but they're not, uh, as soon as they pull it out, they're not really part of that group uh, setting. That's the other thing that worries me is so many people um, think that they don't really need to challenge their mind because it's all already, uh, you know, it's already instantly available on the internet. Well, one thing that was funny to me as a kid is, you know, you're, you're this smart guy, you're this engineer and, um, but you weren't very good with colors. And we always thought that was pretty funny that, you know, you were, you were so smart, but <laughs> you kind of struggled with colors. At what point did you realize that your ability to see colors was compromised or at least different? Maybe, maybe you don't feel like you're at a disadvantage. You just feel like you're seeing the world differently. I always felt like I saw the world differently and I um, um, didn't like, especially as a young person, I didn't like it being called a disability. Um, when I went to get that job at Halliburton after my mission, um, there was um, um, truck drivers um, have to get a, a physical and part of that physical is a color test and um I failed terribly, uh, according to the doctor. According to, according to that. <laughs> right. And he went in another room and called my uh, supervisor and uh, told him that his candidate had failed the exam because he is colorblind. And I heard it was like on speakerphone in a neighboring room and I heard my boss get angry and yell at him and tell him we have a critical need right now for drivers and you're being paid by us and you are going to sign off on his physical and that's that and the doctor come in and said, well, I guess it's going to be okay. <laughs> that wasn't the first time you learned though, right? I mean, you probably had, you knew from a young age. No. Right? You um, differently. I, I'd gone to an eye doctor's exam and I'd been told there, but in school and at home, at home, I never heard anything about it. Uh, in school, they just got to where they're like, well, Justin can't ever get his colors right. And um, I do I do remember the teacher being concerned that I didn't know my colors and um, she'd pull out crayons and hold them up, say, what, what color is this? And it's like, there are so many variations on colors. And so I got to where I'd ask her if I could hold it so I could look at it closer. And you know the colors written on the crayon. <laughs> so, yeah, I did cheat a little bit there. So for you, how do you see the world? You say there's just so many variations. Like, I don't even know what it's like to. I think I see colors, but um, I guess it's just not um, the way everyone else does. And And then. Um, I was being recruited to go into um, the Navy's nuclear power program, and uh, I was excited about it. It's, uh, um, it's essentially a master's degree program, and uh, so out of college, I was going to go into that, and um, they'd already taken me to Bremerton, Washington. I toured nuclear-powered facilities. I'd gone to... Uh, some of their training programs um, and had had fun doing it. And then 
the recruiter kind of got in trouble because he was supposed to have, I was, I needed a physical, that's supposed to be the first step, but he hadn't done that because I was from a rural area. There wasn't any processing facility nearby. And so he uh, drove me to a facility and I couldn't pass the test. And it's just like, at that point, they're like, they're done with you. They don't. Wow. Um, you're out of the program. Was this a product of the tumor, do you think? Or is this unrelated colorblindness? I don't know. Um, I think colorblindness in, is, is relatively common in men. So that may have just been may have been something on its own. But does it bother you that it's called colorblind then when you don't feel like it's a disability? Because you still see color. So you're saying... Mm -hmm. I I remember reading an article um, uh, somewhere that uh, the army actually appreciated colorblind people because uh, during the war... um, they could fly over certain areas or take photographs of certain areas and um, the colorblind people could see things that the in that the enemy had camouflaged whereas other people would not see it so i'm like you guys really have to make a big deal about colorblindness it is it's a well we should do we need to wrap up I probably better go check on Mama and make sure she's using her oxygen and stuff. Okay, well, why don't I hit stop? We'll stop there for today. Thanks for listening to the fifth episode of Sundays with Tozer. In episode six, we discuss the consequences of Tozer's tumor, including the side effects of his medication. We also learn about Tozer's work as a court-appointed special advocate for children. Subscribe to the Mickles and Dimes podcast to be notified each time an episode is posted. Thanks again for listening to Sundays with Tozer.